Hello and welcome to episode number 303 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me today is author and a memoirist, Laura Bradbury. I'm going to give you a tissue warning because this episode might make you cry a little bit. I was definitely teary while I was recording it. Laura Bradbury is the author of several memoirs and she's working on a new romance novella. She's also received a liver transplant in the past year. Now, I met Laura at the Surrey International Writers Conference in British Columbia, Canada, which is a wonderful writers conference. And I met her several years ago um, when they had me as an international guest. Laura had just published her first memoir, My Grape Escape, and she was honored with an award during the conference. And her speech was incredibly moving and very inspiring. Now, at the time, this was several years ago, she was hoping for a transplant. And as she tells me during the interview, Her life and her view on her own fears changed drastically when she was told she had a vicious and incurable autoimmune disorder that was destroying her liver. She lost her fear of writing and wrote that first memoir, and then she wrote another, and then she wrote another. Now she has a series, The Grape Series, which chronicles her life from her decision to be an exchange student to France at the age of 17, and how her story changed drastically after that. We talk about overcoming fear, about having the courage to write, and what it means to write down your own history and your own romance. Her memoirs are very much about her romance with her husband, but also with language and food, and of course, because it's France, wine. We also talk about her liver transplant and how her life has changed in the years since she received a new liver from a living donor. As Laura puts it, there is so much heroism and good in people. Now, this week was my birthday, and I turned 43, and I love this conversation because every day is a gift, and not just for Laura or for me, but also for you. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and that it helps you take another look at whatever fears might be holding you back. This podcast is brought to you by Whiskey Sharp Torn by Lauren Dane. Bo Petty has been searching his whole life, searching for a place that fills all the empty spaces, searching for a way to tame his restlessness, searching for answers to a secret he has never stopped trying to solve. What he was not searching for was a woman to claim all of him, but when Cora Silvera walks back into his life, he's ready to search out all the ways that he can make her his. Cora has spent her life as the family nurturer taking care of others, but now she's ready to pass that job on to someone else. It is time to make changes and live for herself. It is in that moment that her former teenage crush reappears and the draw and heat of their instant connection is like nothing either of them has experienced. He craves being around her. She accepts him, dark corners and all. But Bo thinks that Cora has had enough drama in her life, and he wants to protect her from the secrets of his past, even if it means holding back the last pieces of himself. But Cora is no pushover, and she means to claim all of those pieces because sometimes what you find is not what you were searching for. Whiskey Sharp Torn by Lauren Dane is on sale June 26th and is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Every episode of this podcast receives a full transcript handcrafted by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. This week's episode transcript is brought to you by you. Everyone who has supported the podcast Patreon helps make sure that every episode forward and backward in the archives receives a written transcript. The transcript makes sure that the show is accessible to everyone, including those who cannot or do not wish to listen. And it ensures that everyone who wants to participate in the show is included. So thank you for your support. 
If you would like to sponsor an episode or sponsor a transcript, you can totally do that. Email me at sarah at smartbitchestrashybooks.com. I do have a compliment this week. I love doing this. To Amanda M. All squirrels, put aside a few nuts in case you stop by for a visit because you are one of their heroes. You are fearless and you don't ever stop doing what needs to be done. As I mentioned, the support of the Patreon community helps me commission transcripts and maintain the equipment I use for live shows. And I am planning another one. So if you're going to RWA in Denver, heads up, I will be planning a live show for the conference. So stay tuned for the details. I also collaborate with the Patreon community to develop questions and help me suggest guests. So if you would like to be part of all the goofy fun for as little as $1 a month, you can join our silly group of Patreon podcast supporters and you can help the show. Just go to patreon.com slash smartbitches. I also want to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. To, so to Rachel, Linnea, Maggie, Elizabeth M, and Elizabeth H, all the Elizabeths, thank you for being part of the Patreon. I will have information at the end of the show about the music. I will be telling you what's coming up on Smart Bitches, the website. I have some cool news about an upcoming conference, and I have a terrible joke. But for now, let's do this podcast. On with the interview with Laura Bradbury. My name is Laura Bradbury, and I just published my fifth um, memoir about uh, my life in France. It's called My Great Paris. And um, I'm starting to write my first fiction, which is actually a romance that's set in set in Burgundy. But uh, it's uh, it is I'm writing fiction instead of I'm flipping over from memoir for a little bit of a break and um, and writing a romance. And I'm an avid romance reader as well. Wonderful. Okay, because I want to hear all about that. Yeah, (laughs) you started writing a memoir series about your life, hence the word memoir. And also about your romance with your husband and also with food and with wine. Yes, yes. It's like a multi-layered romance, these memoirs. How did these memoirs come about? Um, well, I was uh, always wanted to be a writer. And um, I had been writing, starting novels, um, but never finishing anything for about 10 years prior to beginning writing my first memoir. And I think now I look back on it, I was just scared to ever um, take anything kind of beyond sort of 70, 75% completion, because then you can be judged on it. And uh, that prospect was terrifying, because for me, writing was always the one thing that I really held close to my heart, and that was very, very important to me. And so it was really fear um, of judgment and fear of failure that was blocking me. And then just before before um, I turned 40, I uh, was totally out of the blue, um, diagnosed with a genetic, very rare, um, incurable autoimmune uh, liver and bile duct disease called PSC. I was all of a sudden facing possible death. And that fear completely um, completely made the fear of failure and the fear, fear of being judged for my writing, it made it, it, made it completely obsolete. Um, And, uh, so I sat down the next morning after being diagnosed and, um, I started writing my first memoir, which is my grape escape. Um, and I didn't finish until, until I published it about 10 months later. And, uh, it was, uh, in 2013, I believe. And, um, that was a really great time to get into self-publishing because there wasn't a lot of other books on the market and it immediately became a bestseller. 
shortly afterwards, I had to go on disability because of my disease. And, um, and writing was really a, a lifeline for me. And it was wonderful for me to be able to, in writing the memoirs, go back and remind myself of all the wonderful experiences I had. And then also it was because I wasn't sure I was going to be around anymore for my three daughters with facing this disease. And I really wanted to leave a record of all the, of where they came from, that they came from a place of such love and sort of little lessons that I could embed in the memoirs that they could choose to access at any point if they wanted to, if I was no longer around. I remember hearing you speak about your memoirs when I first met you at the Surrey International Writers Conference. That's right. And you, I believe you received an award, um, and forgive me for not remembering exactly what, what award it was, but I remember you telling everyone, because we're all crying, because at that point, at that point, you were maybe a year or two post-diagnosis and we're like, yes, uh, it's a very scary know. time. Yeah. Your, your, your liver was not your friend. No. And you put a post-it note on your laptop. I remember you talking about that. Yes. I, I forgot that part of the story, but that's true. I, I, uh, so I woke up the next morning after being diagnosed and all of a sudden my whole life had just turned on its access in a minute. And I'd never had health problems up to this point in my life been an extremely luckily healthy person. And all of a sudden I was facing the prospect of a terminal illness. Um, and so the next morning I was obviously consumed by dread and everything when I woke up, but I got up, I went downstairs, even kind of almost not knowing what I was doing. And um, I opened my laptop, wrote on a post-it note, um, fuck you, I'm not dead yet. Not, not know if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> And stuck it on my computer laptop. And then I started writing because the fear of being judged, of not being a good writer, all of a sudden the fear of dying with the words left inside me was so much stronger than that. That was the only fear I had. And I just was determined to, to finish, to become a finisher, to finish this thing and to, um, to share it with others and to have it out in the world. Now your um, condition, CPD, is that right? No, it's PSC. It's a real mouthful. It's a, the long term is primary sclerosing cholangitis, and it is a real mouthful. That is a bit. What, yes. what are the symptoms? What 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 were the symptoms that led you to getting this diagnosis? Were they well, actually, like- the surprising thing is I didn't have any hardly any symptoms. There was a few random things that I had. Um, that kind of felt off in a few ways, but nothing significant to lead me to even to go to the doctor. Um, in fact, I was feeling so healthy. I was running 10Ks. My husband and I were juicing kale. We grew in the garden. Um, and I we had reapplied for uh, disability and to extend our life insurance because we'd had our third daughter. And um, we'd moved back to Canada from France. And we were feeling so incredibly healthy that we thought that would be a good time to do that. And it was in the life insurance and disability insurance blood testing that they saw my liver enzymes were through the roof. And um, and then that led to a series of other tests, MRI, liver biopsy. And they they quite quickly diagnosed me within about a month and a half. So it was Holy really smoke. completely out of the blue. Yeah. And then afterwards, um, very quickly, I did become ill. So it was good that I was diagnosed, that we knew what we were dealing with. Um, I... Be- began to develop infections in um, in my liver and my bile ducts that basically were permanent, and uh, so I would be have to go for frequent 
hospitalizations where I was on uh, IV antibiotics and very several times I went septic and I was always dealing more or less with a barely controlled case of of sepsis and and I became very jaundiced, exhausted by the last year and a half prior to my transplant last year. Um, I basically spent most of my time on the couch. I could barely get up from the couch, but I somehow managed to writing was really a lifeline for me during that time. There are a number of romance writers I know who decided, all right, that's it. I'm going to do it. Whether it was a life change or a life threat, or in some cases being on bed rest with a difficult pregnancy, mm-hmm. like all I can do is sit here. I'm going to sit here and write. Exactly. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily recommend life-threatening illness as a way to inspire <laughs> writing. Uh, from an objective standpoint, it seems somewhat um, difficult. But it also sounds like once you overcame the fear of worrying about what people were going to think of your writing, you just went for it. And the detail in your memoirs is considerable. Like you remembered so much of the experiences and the food. I confess, I'm reading them out of order. I know you pu- you published my Grape Escape, which is about Chucking law school and renovating homes in in Bone, right? In Burgundy, yeah, in the vineyards in of Burgundy. Burgundy, just outside of Bone. And then the one where you were an exchange student is my grape year. That's yes, and that's so. I did write them out of order. I just write whichever book is whatever story, whatever period of my life is kind of yelling at me the loudest. That's the one I write. <laughs> so I have written them out of order. There's five now, and I've written them completely out of order, which the readers are like, I don't understand, but, um, but, um, it, that you can still, they can be read as, as standalone books. Definitely. So my grape year, um, is your story of becoming an exchange student to France as a 17 year old or an 18 year old. I was 17 actually when I went over there. Yeah. I confess that this is my favorite because I had a very similar experience when I was 15. I studied abroad in Spain and I had like you, very little command of the language. I was placed with a family that did not speak English, and I went to a private high school. I failed all my classes except English because <laughs> I knew how to speak that. And so I'm reading this, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh! I this this is this is a very parallel experience for me." And the thing I love about reading your memoir is that I have very specific memories of some of the food that I ate, but you remember so many of the meals and the so. <laughs> And so much of the wine, even though you weren't supposed to drink. <laughs> oh, but I, it was funny because it was the 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 club who sponsored me in Canada, who I changed the name in the book because I didn't want any lawsuits or anything like that. Right. Um, but it, it, they, when they sent me, they no drinking was the law. But as soon as I got to Burgundy, everybody was like, "Oh my God, you're everyone there who was hosting me was like, "Oh my God, you have to drink wine. You have to taste our local wine. Of course, you're in Burgundy. Of course, you're going to drink wine." <laughs> so. As far as memory, like I, I have a really crazy elephant-like long-term memory. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. My short-term memory is terrible. You can ask anyone in my family. I mean, I can never, I always lose my keys. I can, I'm always double booking myself. I, you know, but as far as what happened 20, 15, 20, 25 years ago, I can totally remember that verbatim. <laughs> so funny. It's interesting you say about the exchange because there's a lot of people who have had that expat experience who are just like, Oh my God, like I, I just completely can relate to, to that experience. There's, it's such an amazing um, kind of once in a lifetime experience to, to study abroad. And um, 
there's so many parallel experiences that I that I feel people who have who have had that have been through that are just crazy and and do really build you as a person, I believe. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that um, resonated with me is the idea that when you're a teenager and you think you know everything, of course, we deliberately placed ourselves in situations where we couldn't talk except I in know. the present tense, then like like five oh. words. Like I knew how to say absolutely nothing, and by the time I left six months later, I was dreaming in Spanish. I and know it's all the way that your brain absorbs a second language is fascinating. Don't you find it's kind of magical almost? And I don't know about you, but I couldn't learn a foreign language. I, my brain just wasn't adapted to learning a foreign language at school, like in my high school classes, but the immersion was a completely different experience. Oh yes. Last year I was in um, Paris and I was having dinner with my husband and I'm trying to learn French and my brain is like, listen, you get two. You don't get three. You get yeah. two languages. The third <laughs> is like really a challenge because I'll go for a French word. My brain's like, oh, the thing that's not English here is Spanish. This yeah, is what you get. Exactly. <laughs> but I was sitting next to this couple and, I, and I'm a horrible person and I have no manners, but I couldn't help but notice they were talking in American English, Spanish, uh, Spain, Spanish, and um, French, like in and out of all three languages. Wow. And I was like, I am so sorry, but that's amazing. And I was talking to them about learning multiple languages and how they fluidly move from one to the other. And I remember something that the, the wife said, she said, when you learn another language and then you learn another language after that, you learn how much you don't know. And it makes you very humble. Yes. And I was like, yes, that is it. Cause you get a massive dose of humility as a teenager when you think you know everything and suddenly you can't even talk. Well, and you have this identity as a teenager, you, you're, you know, you're pretty confident, you know who you are and you're known as like a funny person with like a wry sense of humor and yes. all these things that you're known of. And all of a sudden without words, it's like, you know, the little mermaid, you're, you're stripped of that and yep. you have to figure out who you are, um, without that. And I think it's a very character building experience. It really is. The thing that I always found so horrible when I met you and you were going through um, gradual and terminal liver, liver failure at that yeah. time, you're married to a French dude and you own property in France and oh. you could not drink wine. Seriously, someone up there in the sky when I, when <laughs> I was diagnosed, because before, so my husband and I had developed for, we lived in France for, well, I've lived in France quite a few times over my lifetime, but my husband is from Burgundy, from the vineyards in Burgundy. All our friends, all his family are winemakers, are involved in the winemaking trade somehow. His parents used to own vineyards and it's just so entrenched in in life there. Um, we went over back there for five years with our two, our two oldest daughters and actually had our third daughter is born in Bone. And um, we developed four vacation rentals uh, that catered to clients who were interested in coming to France and wine tasting, visiting the vineyards. And I've always loved wine tasting. I've obviously been privileged to taste some amazing wines. Um, and then I was diagnosed with a liver disease that had nothing to do with drinking. Um, that was an autoimmune liver disease. In the morning I was diagnosed, I was I kind of looked up at the ceiling of the doctor's office and I was like, Seriously? And I was even thinking of going back to France at some time and doing this, um, this sort of professional wine tasting marketing course that's offered by the Wine Institute there. And yeah, it, I was just like, really? 
really? (laughs) (laughs) Life's great ironies. Oh man. I just felt like it was some sort of sick joke in more ways than one. Now your story has a very happy, very happy ending. You had a liver transplant from a living donor. I did. It was a very arduous, um, journey. Anyone who's been through transplant, I think, can tell you it's one of the toughest things that you go through in life. Um, There's a real shortage of uh, organ donors in North America, and our systems are um, opt-in. And just because of the power of inertia, there's so many people who would be organ donors, but just have never actually um, made, you know, done that, made that leap to, to sign up. And, um, and so I've had, I had many doctors be totally blunt with me and said, you know, if you, um, given the nature of your, of PSC and the way that it develops and the way it's developing in you, you'll be dead before you ever get an organ from a deceased, deceased donor. There's just not enough organs out there. And, um, the way that they're prioritized, people with PSC are at a disadvantage, um, and other diseases, people who have cirrhosis from drinking or drug abuse or, um, other diseases like hepatitis, they're prioritized first. Um, and they said to me, you'll, you'll never get a, you'll never get a deceased donor organ. Um, so you have to look for a a living donor. Um, and a lot of people aren't aware of this, but livers regenerate. And so somebody can donate a part of their liver and it would regenerate in the recipient. So me, and it re regenerates in them. So it becomes a full size, in the, in the recipient and it, and in the donor, it grows back to a full size. So, um, so pretty early on in the game, I start, well, I was always very open about my, about PSC and about my journey towards liver transplant because, um, I just felt that it really helped raise awareness for a little known disease. And it really, hopefully if even like one or two people signed up to become an organ donor because of my own journey, then I felt that that was worth it. And, um, so I put the news out, you know, pretty early on that I was going to need to have to probably look for uh, a living donor if the disease didn't kill me first. And that was a big if, because there was many things that any of these episodes of sepsis, they could have offed me pretty quickly. Um, there was a big risk of bile duct cancer. I was being monitored for all these things all the time. And that's the knife edge of organ transplant is you have to be sick enough to warrant a transplant, but you can't be too sick to receive that transplant. And it it is really balancing on a, on a knife edge. Finally, about two and a half years ago, I was accepted into the transplant program at the university of Alberta in Edmonton. And they really specialize in, in live donor transplants, which is why I went there. I had a high school friend who came forward and um, wanted to donate and he was he was considered a match and we even had an OR date that was set like two weeks from from that point. And then uh, one of the surgeons said that he had an extra bile duct and it wouldn't work for us to to um, link up well in the surgery and it would create more complications for me. So that was called off at the last minute. So that was very devastating because at this point I was getting very, very sick and death was a kind of constant companion in my life. And I could feel my body shutting down. I was extremely yellow, had no energy. It was terribly nauseous all the time. And honestly, death started to look like not such a bad um, alternative to living in so much pain and so much angst and so much worry. 
And, but there was a second person who came forward and was tested and was approved. And then their husband, um, got cold feet and didn't want his wife to donate, was worried about the risk. And so that she was approved and then she pulled out, which is totally people, I believe donors should completely be able to pull out right until they're put under the anesthetic. I think that should, you know, that's part of the process that it happens ethically. And I completely understood Mm -hmm. where she was coming from and where he was coming from, but it was completely devastating because at that point I really was very close to, to death. And, um, and then a uh, third time lucky, my wonderful friend Nissa, who actually we met, uh, she was my, my youngest daughter's sparks leader. Um, she said, I'm, I really want to be tested. I really want to do this. And she made sure to make sure, talk to her husband, talk to her family, talk to talk through it with everybody before even going ahead with the testing. And, um, so she went to Edmonton, she did the testing. And then the last day of testing, I was kind of expecting a phone call from her to figure out, find out whether she was a match or not. And she called and she said, um, so what are you doing next Thursday? And it was like Friday, I think. Um, and I said, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I haven't, haven't thought that far ahead. And uh, she said, well, how about you come to Edmonton and I give you a piece of my liver? So it was amazing. So we had five days to or to get my kids cared for and, and her too. And so they booked the OR date five days after the day she was approved. So wow. yeah, it was incredible. And um, she's an incredibly healthy pot. She's just a hero. I, I just can't say, you know, it's, we live in polarizing times and often all you hear is about is the bad negative side of humanity but there's so much good there that somebody would do that she has two young children of her own a husband she's a has a phd in botany she works as a professional botanist for the government um you know that somebody would make that sacrifice and take that risk to save my life is uh and it was a true honor to go through this experience with her we before we were rolled into the ors we were holding hands in our stretchers with our crazy surgery caps on and crying and we had recovery rooms in the transplant wing side by side and she's done incredibly well um she's very got a very strong constitution and um and she's done incredibly well and uh I've done incredibly well her liver is just beautiful golden it's working wonderfully in me and uh I just you know I just want people to know that there are people like Nissa out there, that there's so much heroism and good in people. That's really lovely. Yeah. What has, what has post-operative life been like for her and for you? I imagine, you know, having a piece of your liver taken out and then having your liver was, was it removed and then replaced or did they leave some of yours in to sort of like trick your immune system? Like, oh no, it's totally been there all along. No, mine, no, 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 it's fine. mine was so diseased. They had to get, they even had to cut out the bile ducts like right. And actually um, when they did take out my liver, I had a, one of the hepatologists come by in the days after the transplant when they did the, um, they do an autopsy basically on the old, my old liver. And, um, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, you probably maximum, you had three months left before you died. Holy moly. Yeah, he said, oh maximum. my God. He said, thank God you did it when you, you had this done when you did, because he said, I, I don't think you would have lasted longer than three months. And actually I have Nissa's, they gave me her entire right lobe of her liver. Um, and, uh, they, I actually have, um, 
bile ducts donated from an anonymous donor that they used to attach her liver to my, cause they cut everything right down to the root for me. And then they, so I, I'm alive because of Nissa's liver, an anonymous donor's ducts and vessels that they used to reattach them. And I also received five pints of um, donated blood during the surgery to keep me alive. So I'm walking because of, I'm walk here alive, walking, living my life because of other people's goodness. And I never forget that for a moment. And Nissa has, she, the, the recovery is pretty brutal. Like Nissa did very well, but she had a few days of really severe nausea um, and stomach upset and stuff because all of a sudden her liver went from full size to just her left lobe in the time that it was regrowing. Um, and you definitely have to really rest it for like three months. You have, you're very tired and your body is, is healing for three months. Um, I had, I went through a pretty serious bout of rejection immediately after I received the liver um, and I was given some pretty heavy duty IV meds and steroids and stuff for that. And that wasn't particularly fun, but um, all the doctors now seem to say that that was a good thing and that that was my body recalibrating with the new liver and, um, and that it was good. So I was a month in the hospital. She was about a week in the hospital and she flew back home to Victoria after two weeks. And I, I had to spend, I was in Edmonton for three months because it's a lot more complex for the recipient as far as, um, as far as the rejection medication and balancing all that. And there's, because we have so many different pieces, all of a sudden inside us has been so much rewiring. They want it, They want us to be close around for about three months afterwards. Wow. Yeah. And both of you are doing okay. Now. We're doing great. Yeah. I just had, we both just had our year checkups at the end of March and um, yeah, they're, uh, they, they just say, you know, you're doing beautifully. Like it's great. My liver numbers are fantastic. Um, for me, PSC can come back at any point, and um, in about 25 to 50% of cases, it does come back. Sometimes it's within six months, sometimes 18 years, Or, but they're doing research, and it's a very underfunded disease, PSC, because it is an orphan disease, but um, there's a great organization called PSC Partners, and they collect a bunch of money and do research grants, and actually there is some promising treatments that are on the forefront. And, um, and then there's also a chance that it won't come back for me. So I'm just enjoying every healthy day that I have. And, you know, I've been around a whole year now more than I would have been. And I've been around to parent my children and be a wife to my husband and, um, write and go for walks on the beach and spend time with our dog. And, you know, so I'm just grateful for every second. It totally changes your perspective. Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> it just flips everything on its head. And I just, yeah, I look at life completely differently. I, I think I take a much, um, I'm not scared of so many of the things that I was scared of before. Like, for example, embarking on a fiction project where, you know, I, I'm, I'm well known for my memoirs now. And, and those aren't easy. I don't think writing any book is easy ever. But um, I know the I know how to write those. I feel pretty confident. I know how to write them. You know what happened. Like, you know, the story, you're, you're pretty sure you know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but even like embarking on something new, like fiction, and I'm, it's a steep learning curve. Like I'm having to learn how to write, you know, how to craft a romance. And, um, and there's so much technical craft that, that comes into that. But, you know, I'm not scared because in my mind, I should already be dead. So everything else is just bonus. It's just fun playtime. So that's sort of how I look at life. And writing, writing. even when it's scary, is still like playtime. 
It is. And I think the the fact that it's scary keeps me engaged and interested in the in the feeling that I'm learning so much. Like I just I'm constantly going to the library and checking out. I have this huge library, a home library of craft books for writers. And right now I'm checking out all the craft books of, you know, a lot of my favorite romance writers have written written um craft books about how they how they put together a romance and everything. So I'm kind of <laughs> scouring that and I love the the feeling of learning and, and challenging myself and doing something different. And because I'm such a huge romance reader myself, I love romance and romances saved me during those six years of, of illness. So they were the Regency romance. That was like my go-to comfort read. And, uh, and they really mentally, it was the place that I could escape to. So if I can provide that to somebody else, then I'm just absolutely thrilled. So you posted on Instagram recently a picture of the vineyards in Burgundy and talked about your novella. Um, can you tell me about what you're writing? I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make it difficult for you to write if you talk about it too much, but I would really love to hear about the novella that you're working on. Yes, I think this is every author's least favorite thing is trying to describe what they're working on because it's tell me about your work. Oh God. Yeah, no, for me, like my I I write an epically crappy first draft and that's just my process there's no way I can get out anything on the page if I'm trying to do it in any sort of structured or um neat fashion I just kind of it's just like you know and then uh but so this one actually came out really fast I had a friend I was feeling really burnt out after publishing my great Paris just because that whole book had been written through the transplant process um and uh it was just such an arduous two years and I was so happy to complete it and get it out in the world. And it's a book I'm very, very proud of, but it's a large book. And I just was feeling really burnt out. And um, so a novella just felt, I had a friend suggest that I write a novella and I was like, that actually feels perfect right now. And then (laughs) sat down one morning and I had, uh, there's a lot of inheritance issues with vineyards in Burgundy. Um, And I had, there's people who lease vineyards and the lease lasts the lifetime of the owner of the vineyard. So this is a case where there's a very hardworking female winemaker who actually uh, lost her husband in a vineyard accident six years previously and has been uh, working and developing the vineyards that um, were left to her by this lease that her husband enjoyed. The vineyard owner, who is also her mentor, um, passes away. And then there's a his she actually co-inherits the vineyards with his grandson, who is this like playboy winemaker and basically the antithesis of everything that she stands for. She stands for grit and hard work and um and he's all about publicity and marketing and and the glam side of winemaking. And she's the earthy, um the earthy working side basically and has really had to struggle to keep her family afloat by work by creating by working in her vineyards and creating her wine and so it's their clash coming together when they they end up co-inheriting this vineyard that is that she has been working the, the story could change but that's the basic premise of it so you have two people with a in, internal conflict who approach life very differently and then the external setting is also the conflict plus you know making wine is super easy and nothing ever goes wrong <laughs> oh, there's so. Yeah. I think you know some people. There's so many people who, who uh, I don't know. They look at winemaking as like a glamorous activity, but no. it's basically farming. <laughs> you know, it's farming. And so I've had my friends the last few years, not last year, but the previous years before that, 
who had like 70% of their grapes wiped out by hailstorms just before the harvest. It was devastating. These are my friends who are living through like having no stocks of wine to sell, um, you know, and all their hard work of all those months gone in, in about a five minute period when the hail just rains down and destroys all the, all the grapes. And that's it. Yeah. And that's it. There's no, there's no grapes. There's no wine you can make from them. So, and the friend who's, um, whose photo I posted, she's one of, she grew up with, with my husband, Frank, in in this little winemaking village in Burgundy, where we have our rentals. She is the grittiest person that I have ever come across. She's, (laughs) she's just, she's just such a hard worker and she's so pragmatic about her work, but at the same time, she's a real artist. She creates these amazing wines, pure, unfiltered, beautiful wines, getting the most out of, out of, and I just love that contrast in her, in her, in a person. One thing that's, that's um, with my memoirs, I have, have felt frustrated from a marketing perspective because they're very romantic. Like one reviewer said, these are the most romantic memoirs I've ever read. Like the romance is front and center in all of the memoirs. And yet, you know, the way the categories happen on Amazon and stuff is, is that it's hard to access uh, fellow romance writer, romance readers like me because um, they're stuck in the memoirs section and people don't tend to go there for, for romance. So I'm hoping this will be sort of a crossover book. I also agree that the approach of writing a novella seems a little bit less intimidating than writing a novel. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I, I also did that. I wrote a Hanukkah novella. Um, which I read and I loved. <laughs> oh my gosh, you've read it? Oh my oh, gosh. Yes, I did after we, yeah, after we met. I totally read it. I bought thank it and you. I read it and I reviewed it. And yeah, I loved it. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. But I remember very, I'm like all embarrassed now. <laughs> I remember very clearly thinking, yeah, novel's too hard. You could do that. You could, you could do it. You can do this. You, you, a novella. Yeah, you can do that. And then I think of all the words that I've written on the website, that's like nine novels. Totally, totally. And of course, with the memoirs, you've written five easily um, novels with e- with each one. They are substantial. They're substantial stories. Yeah, the, the last one was uh, My Great Paris was one hundred and twenty two thousand words. So that's, that's two novels. It's, it's a big book. Yeah, it's yeah. a very big book. So um, and just to, actually for writing My Great Paris, so I wrote before the transplant. I thought I had a rough draft before the transplant, but with a really advanced liver disease, like I had, you get something called um, hepatic encephalopathy, where your liver is not processing anything really in your body anymore. So you have a buildup of ammonia in your blood, which oh, causes, good. yeah, no, which mirrors dementia. Basically you have dementia symptoms from all this ammonia. And so I thought I'd written a rough draft of my great Paris prior to the transplant. And then I went back to, to, to editing it a month after a month to the day that I had my transplant when I finally got out of the hospital, it was like Latvian. I don't know what I had written. It was, I had to, I was, I was rereading it. I think this isn't even English. I don't even know what I wrote here. I was, you know, at the time I was hanging on trying to convince myself that I was functioning. Okay. But it made no sense. So I basically had to start right from the beginning again. So I basically wrote my great Paris twice. A novella just seemed really fun to kind of you know, dip my toe in the waters of romance writing and a little bit quicker gratification, which is always nice. Yeah, I just really wanted to learn how to write romance because I love romance so much. Well, you know, I've seen many a person tell me how easy it is to write romance. I'll just <laughs> take a weekend someday and write one. And it is not easy. It is oh not my gosh, easy at all. No. 
like sex scenes are so hard to write. Very difficult. There's well, there is so many well-written ones out there, but there's so many poorly written ones too. And it's difficult. Yeah, I've written a few and I've, I know I've got to go back and rewrite them because it is really, really difficult. Yeah. I uh, I chickened out. I decided that I would keep mine within the realm of YA, thinking that maybe there would be a sequel. Maybe I would send copies to summer camps. I mean, they're adults and they acknowledge sexuality and they talk about desire. Um, but the, I was like, yeah, I, I can't. I just chickened out. I didn't do it. <laughs> Well, in my memoirs, like as, as much as they're very romantic, they're definitely closed doors. Like I make oh, illusions, of course. you know, because I don't have that much money to send my entire family to therapy <laughs> from now to eternity. So, so I was, you know, out of respect for my husband who already is not crazy about the idea that I write about our lives and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely kept a, kept a closed door. So the writing, the full on sex scenes is a new thing for me. And yeah, it's, it requires a lot of skill, technique, and craft. It really does. And it is, yeah. it is a very delicate process. Yes. I also think that for those of people, for those people who aren't fully fluent in what it means to read romance, you don't understand um, the power of creating intimate arousal in a total stranger through the words you're writing down. Like that is a big deal. Oh yeah. 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 No, I know. It's it's and you know, I bow down to um, the people who, the writers who are really skilled at that, I think yeah. that is an amazing craft and, you know, it, it is not easy. And I, I, I agree. It's one of the hardest things to do, I think, in, in writing, writing a good it sex really scene. Is. And I'm realizing I'm making t- tons of double entendres with the word hard, but it- <laughs> that's all right. It is, uh, it is a standard occurrence when you're talking about romance sex scene. You just have to, you just have to push through. Yeah, <laughs> I keep. I've, I've done this for hours. Yes, <laughs> it's very difficult to talk about it without being like, "Oh yeah, that's, that's what she said." So, <laughs> they're hard to talk about too. They're not only yes. hard, they're hard to talk about. They're very hard to talk about. So, what are some of your favorite romances? If people ask you for recommendations, what are some of your favorites that you like to reread and recommend to people? Uh, well, I love um, Joe Beverly. I'm a huge Joe Beverly fan. Regency romance is really. Um, like I said, like in the years when I was sick, that was like my go-to, um, comfort sort of fiction. So her whole rogue series, I loved that. And the Mallorans, Mal, I'm not sure how to pronounce that because I just read it, but that, that whole series I loved of Joe Beverly's. And yeah, I was very sorry when she passed away because I really, really enjoyed reading her books. And Lisa Claypass. Yeah, I really like her books. Jane Feather, really like her books. Some of my favorite romance books, like I love um, Susan Wiggs. I think it was maybe her first book, um, Char- The Charm School. That's a, one of my favorite romances. I've read that a few times. Contemporary romance, I really like uh, Jennifer Cruz's Bet Me. That's one of my favorites. She, I don't know. She just does a great job of having a larger cast of characters, but they're all really individual. And I, I just, yeah, I thought that was very, very well done. And who else? I really like uh, Bella Andre, who actually likes my books. And I'm super fangirling because I really love her books. Her Sullivan series, that's contemporary. And um, I really like that series. That's Again, it's like the interlinked family and the same characters. I come back throughout the novels. I really like that. And, you know, it's a, this is not actually traditionally a romance, but one book that I reread every year that I consider a romance is um, Annie Prue's the, Sh- the Shipping News. That's one of my very favorite books. And the romance of the sort of quiet, 
slowly brewing romance between um, Coyle, the main character, and uh, the woman that he eventually ends up with, and his sort of redemption and everything is is uh, I find that very sweet, and and I there's just a lot I love about that book. I've read the shipping news. I agree with you. There's definitely a very strong romance in there, especially yeah. because Coyle is so self conscious about what he looks like and doesn't yes. see himself as heroic, and then embodies a hero in all of these little subtle ways as the story progresses. Totally. Yeah, yeah, and it just you can and just the way that she um, describes the place is so evocative that you can see him finally finding a place that he belongs and um, mm-hmm. a life that he belongs in, and like you said, like being able to show the best sides of himself, and and uh, I just think that's a very sweetly developing romance. And then another really good one that's a that's a it's a memoir, but it's very romantic is um, Samantha Veron. It's called Seven Letters from Paris. And it's about reconnecting with her old flame who she met when she was on an exchange. Um, Years, like, I don't know, decades later, um, she found the letters and then she reconnected with him. And actually she ended up um, marrying him and she's living in France now. So that's a very beautiful romance story. Oh, yeah. Now, I know you have a... I think you have a, a cover quote from Janice McLeod, but you've read Paris Letters, yeah? Yes, and yeah, and I... I uh, Another romantic I, memoir. Yes, and it's just also, I, I almost consider her books pieces of art. They're so beautiful. And uh, there's another writer, Vicky Lesange, who writes very sort of comic um, books about her love life in France and bringing up children in France and everything. And they're very romantic as well. I love a good romantic memoir. That's one of my favorite kinds because you know, it's going to be happy. Yeah. And you know, there's so much romance in real life that really is worthy of writing about that. Um, it's hard to have that crossover with readers between romance and, and memoir, but there is so many romantic memoirs out there. A lot of them too are like romance with people with themselves, like finding them through their true selves by traveling or, um, traveling somewhere and meeting somebody or it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of these things that happen in real life. I'm amazed through writing my own memoir. People will email me with their own stories. I have one reader who is from Canada and she met uh, her husband who is from Bali and she's now living in Bali and having her children. So many of these things that actually do happen, they're, they're interesting to read about as well. And when you frame the memoir in relocating to another place, especially another place where you don't speak the language, you have to figure out the absolute essentials of who you are. Yes. Because you can't get around very easily or talk very easily. You have to really reduce everything to the absolute essential, including your personality and who you are and who you're going to be in that moment. Yes. Yeah. And you become very, um, I think you become a lot more self-contained and self-reliant as well. Oh, yeah. You really have time to spend with yourself because for the first little while anyway, you can't, it's very difficult to interact with the wider world because the language barrier. When you remove yourself from everything that is your autopilot, that everything that is familiar, it's also very painful because you have to confront all of the things about yourself that you use in your home and your home life to distract yourself from things that you don't necessarily enjoy about yourself. Like you can't hide from yourself when there's no autopilot anywhere. No, you're so out of your comfort zone. And all those places that we kind of can duck into our comfort zone when we're in our everyday life, all of that is stripped away from you. It's amazing 
how you do have to spend time with yourself and you really get to know yourself what's inside you, not the part of you that that is extroverted and social, but the actual part of you, who you are when you're alone by yourself in yourself. And, um, and it, and also I think it, it makes, it's hard, but it makes the reward when you are ultimately able to build up a semblance of a life in a new place, like be able yes. to get by with the language, even if it is, isn't perfect, be able to make uh, a few friends to get to know the food, get to know your favorite restaurants. When you build, when you adapt to a new place, I find that gives you so much confidence going forward. And that experience yes. is just so valuable. It is. So the one, the one question I always ask before I stop is, um, what, what are you reading right now that you want to tell people about? Are you reading anything that you want to share? Um, I'm actually reading, uh, Kate Morton. I've gotten onto her. So she's reading, it's actually, she is, she writes these amazing kind of saga intergenerational saga books. I'm reading the lake house by her and mm-hmm. I just finished the forgotten garden. Um, but they always do have a romance element to them. Really any book that doesn't, unless it's like a science book or something, if books don't have a romance element, there's not a lot of books without a romance element that really capture my interest for very long. Um, but her books are amazing. They're these like epic kind of historical fiction, um, but these like family mysteries that that solve, mm-hmm. but they, ha- they always have really satisfying, good endings. And um, they're just a really great read. Nice big <laughs> read. Yeah. So I'm on her second one, The Lake House. And I think she has one called The House at Riverton that I'm kind of looking for in the bookstores. And then I think she has a new one that's either just come out, oh, The Clockmaker's Daughter or something to do with clocks, I think. And um, anyway, I'm really enjoying, really, really enjoying uh, enjoying her books. She's a, she was a great find. Saying that uh, if you're reading a book and there's no romance, what's the point? Reminds me of of one of the people in your memoir who, when you first get to France, is like, if the food isn't good, what like what's the point? Yeah, yeah, if it doesn't taste good, because I was brought up with North North American, you know, where it has to be healthy, like steamed broccoli and like salmon fillet, but like totally bland, tasteless, like but but it's good for you, so you should eat it. And in France, they're like, well, if the food doesn't taste good, then like don't eat it. Why would you eat yeah. food that? Right? food is supposed to taste good. Like that was, that was a revelation for me. (laughs) It was something to be enjoyed, period. That's it. Yeah. And if a book has no romance, there's no point. That's, that's what I'm like. I, if things don't have a romantic story, then, you know, somewhere in the story, then, then, uh, then I'm just, yeah, really not that interested. So what happened to the post-it note? Did you, that you wrote, did you frame it? I, it's actually still in my desk. It's in my desk drawer. <laughs> it's just faded yellow, like just your typical standard yellow with a sticky strip on the back, yellow post-it note. And I did it. I've, I've kept it in my, I've kept it in my desk drawer. And I, and I do, I do, I still do the post-it note thing where, um, you know, when I'm at that stage of editing where you just cannot wait to see the back end of your book and you just want to start something else. I just, I always put like, just, just finish the, uh, the effort. <laughs> and just I finish the fucker. On my screen and yeah, I'm I'm a big um, sort of post-it note motivator. I, yeah, when you want to give up, just finish. You know. Yeah. <laughs> just dig in and finish. It takes a lot of grit to to finish a book. It's easy yes. to start and to get to like seventy percent, but it was. Um, oh, I also love um, 
Liz Boyle, Elizabeth Boyle. I love her books as well. And I love her as a person as well. She's, I've met her and she said, you know, you learn more from finishing the last 10% of your book than you do the other 90%. And that is so true. You learn more finishing a book than you do starting. You learn more finishing one book than you do starting 10. And that also fits your life because you learned more when with what you thought was the last 10% of your life. Yes. Oh, completely. And it's completely transformed. I guess that was my midlife crisis. I, I kind of think, well, thank you. There was my midlife crisis served up on the platter because it completely changed. You know, when that occurred, I was working um, full time in the family business. I was super stressed out. I um, was working with family, but not, I love my family, but I didn't enjoy working with them and, but not wanting to admit that to myself or to them, um, was not taking care of myself, was, uh, you know, just stressed, really wanted to write, to be creative, was a frustrated creative basically, but didn't feel brave enough to go ahead with that. There was so many things that I would worry about that now I don't even, don't even register with me. I think you lose when you're facing something, a terminal illness, you lose so much fear of so many fears that you had about other things. Mm -hmm. I don't want to forget to ask you if someone is interested in learning about how to be a living donor, are there resources that you can suggest? And if there are not, I can easily find them and add them to the intro and outro. Yes. Um, well, I think it depends, like it seems to be, um, every cent, every transplant center. So if you have a, a hospital that does transplants near you, they are the people to contact to ask if they have a living donor program. And, um, and you can ask, or if you have anyone in your life who needs a transplant or might potentially need a transplant, um, they would be the person to talk to about who to contact if you wanted to do a direct donation um, towards towards anybody. And um, I would encourage everyone to sign up themselves to be an organ donor and vote for or support opt out systems wherever they live. And also people can donate blood, which is um, save my life and save so many lives. And that's a pretty easy thing for many people to to donate. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. You can find Laura at her website, lauraBradbury.com. I also recommend her Instagram. It is really beautiful. She's a great photographer. And her Instagram handle is lauraBradburyWriter. You can also find her newest memoir, My Great Paris, wherever books are sold. I will also have links to many of the topics we discussed in this episode, including PSC, the Surrey International Writers Conference, and options to become an organ donor. Most likely, if you're in the United States, you register in your state, typically when you renew your driver's license. Uh, this past year, I was able to renew my license and finally be an organ donor because the last few times I tried to renew my license in another state, I was pregnant and was not permitted to sign up as an organ donor. So finally, finally, I have the sticker on my license. You can register at your state to become an organ donor at organdonor.gov register. You can also find out about living donation at transplantliving.org. And I will have sources on the website, smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. Should you be curious about giving blood or giving platelets or registering for the bone marrow database? If you've heard horror stories about donating bone marrow where someone has to like jam a needle in your hip bone, that is not how it happens. It's actually pretty chill. It does take some time. But bone marrow 
is very much needed, especially if you are from a minority culture or group. Bone marrow is desperately needed. So I will have links to find out about all of those things. And on a more fun note, I will have some links about foreign exchange, which, as you might imagine, I highly recommend doing if you can. This podcast was brought to you by Whiskey Sharp Torn by Lauren Dane. Bo Petty has been searching his whole life, searching for a place that fills the empty spaces, searching for a way to tame his restlessness, searching for answers to the secret he has never stopped trying to solve. What he was not searching for was Cora Silvera, who walks back into his life when he was least expecting it. Cora has spent her life as the family nurturer taking care of others, but now she is ready to pass that job on to someone else and start living for herself. And that is when her former teenage crush reappears, and the draw and heat of their instant connection is like nothing either of them has experienced. Even though Bo thinks that Cora has had enough drama and tries to hold pieces of himself back from her, she is not having it. She is no pushover, and she means to claim every piece of him for herself, because sometimes what you find is not what you were searching for. Whiskey Sharp Torn by Lauren Dane is on sale June 26th, and is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. This week's podcast transcript is brought to you by everyone who has supported the podcast Patreon. Thank you very much. Each transcript is hand-compiled by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. And if you have supported the Patreon, you have helped make sure that each episode receives a full transcript so that people who cannot listen or do not wish to listen can still participate in all of the silly mayhem of the show. If you have a dollar that you would like to throw in the direction of this show, I would be so delighted to have it at patreon.com slash smartbitches. I also want to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. So to Catherine, Ellen, Sandra, Teresa, and Lara, thank you so very, very much for being part of our Patreon. Are there other ways you can support the show? I am sure you know them already, but let's sing along together. You can leave a review wherever and however you listen. You can tell a friend. You can subscribe. Whatever works. Thank you for hanging out with me each week. Ugh. And of course now Orville has joined me on the desk and I have to move things out of the way before his gut lands across the desk. Are you are you ready to sit? Are you just going to spin around? All right, so Orville has things to tell you. He would like you to know that I haven't fed him in nine years and uh, he's going to butt his head onto the sound box right now, which sounds really good. So if anyone out there is an audio engineer, yeah, there we go. If any of you are audio engineers, I apologize in advance. Actually, you know what? I don't. Every podcast needs a cat, and I, of course, have one right here. So now that you've messed me up, Orville, are you going to help me do the narration? No? You're going to help me do the outro? No? You're just going to... Okay, that's fine. Thump his tail. Okay. <clears throat> Where was I? Oh, I have a cool thing to tell you about. You ready? Orville and I both do. The Mid-Continent Public Library, which is a large library system located in Kansas City, Missouri, is having a very large event coming up in August... And uh, I think you guys might want to hear about this if you're in that area. On August 3rd and 4th, they will be hosting the Romance GenreCon, a free two-day romance convention featuring a terrific lineup of best-selling and award-winning authors, including Cherry Adair, Kathy Maxwell, Carolyn Sparks, and more. They are going to have panels. Orville just redid my entire desktop. Gosh, I am just rocking professionalism today, bud. Thank you very much. For interrupting all of my narration with your butt. Where was I? Where was I? Thank you. I'm going to hold the mouse now because clearly you like it. As I was saying, the Romance Genre Con is going to have some best-selling authors leading a variety of panels and workshops for romance readers and writers. 
you can see the entire schedule of events at mymcpl.org forward slash romance. I will have a link to this in the podcast entry show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. And it would be really great if my cat would stop screwing up my outro. Such a professional. I know, right? So professional. Okay. The music you are listening to was not provided by Orville, though he is trying. <laughs> the music every week, as you know, is provided by Sassy Outwater, and you can find her at Sassy Outwater. This is Shadow Orchestra. This track is called Matilda Reprise, and you can find it on their EP Remaker. You can find Shadow Orchestra on MySpace, and you can find their music on iTunes and on Amazon. Coming up on Smart Bitches this week, we have a many nifty things, including Hide Your Wallet Part 2, better known as BookBeat. We are going to take a peek at some books that we've heard about and we want to read as soon as possible. We also have another Bachelorette recap coming up, reviews of some new books and some books from our library stacks, and a new edition of Unlocking Library Coolness, which is one of my favorite columns to write. And as I mentioned, I will have links to all of the books we discussed, as well as links to ways to become an organ donor, ways to learn more about PSC, and if you'd like, ways to become a foreign exchange student. Again, highly recommend it. But as always, I end with a terrible joke, and this is pretty bad, so I'm really excited. Okay? All right. What has two butts and kills people? Orville does not know, and he's very annoyed. What has two butts and kills people? Zeb wants to know, too. This is a great joke. An assassin. <laughs> assassin. <laughs> that joke is from Le Crowing on Reddit, and it's terrible, and so I love it dearly. What has two butts and kills people? An assassin. <laughs> I love wordy nerd jokes. Those are the best kind of jokes. So on behalf of Orville, who is now occupying 75% of my desk, and Laura Bradbury and everyone here, we wish you the very, very best of reading. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>